0: You're listening to The Higher Ed Marketer, the podcast for marketing professionals in higher education. Join us every week as we talk to the industry's greatest minds in student recruitment, donor relations, marketing trends, new technologies, and much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where marketing in higher ed is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show.
1: Welcome to the High Red Marketer Podcast. He's Bart Kaler. I'm Troy Singer. And today we have a wonderful conversation with Neil Ford of NeilFord.com. So listeners, I think Bart and I, for the most part, try to present this podcast in the form of a lab. But today you're getting lecture. A lecture that is very deep, very moving. You will leave very enriched. Bart, Can you give us an idea or kind of unpack who Neil Ford is?
2: Yeah, Neil Ford is uh, somebody that I came across actually through Ethan Braden at Purdue. I follow him on LinkedIn. Neil is a wonderful storyteller. Um, That's kind of what he's known for, just kind of a black background, uh, good typography, and he just tells stories. They're stories that anybody can relate to, kind of clever, and they just kind of leave you thinking. And so I reached out to him and asked him to come on and talk about storytelling. And he talks about just the impact that that can make in any
1: kind of marketing.
2: And so as Troy said, it might not be as much practical things to walk away with as more of being inspired when we're done today.
1: You know what, Bart? This was the first time that I've recorded a podcast that I've had tears through it. That's how moved I was by a couple of his stories. Without further ado, here's Neil Ford. Neil, if you would kick us off with something that you've learned this week that would be interesting or fun to share.
3: Tell you what, I've got a movie recommendation. It's a documentary mm-hmm. and it's called Accidental Courtesy. And it is about a fellow named Daryl Davis, who is a honky-tonk piano player, quite a quite a brilliant musician. He's African-American and he was in this maryland bar playing with a band he was the only african-american in the band sort of mid-set this fella comes up to him and says you know i never heard a black fella play that honky-tonk piano like jerry lee lewis before that's really something and daryl acquainted this guy with well you know jerry lee kind of got it from from other sources namely fats waller and little richard so This man was quite a music aficionado and this was news to him. So he found that very interesting. The two of them wind up in a booth having a conversation and ultimately this guy says to him, you know, Daryl, this bar you're playing in, this is a Klan bar as in Ku Klux Klan. And so you're a bit of a novelty around here. And then he shows Daryl his Klan membership card. Now, it would have been a kind of normal reaction to make your exit at this point. But Daryl was honestly curious what, what made you join the clan and what's that like? And do you mind if I ask you what it is you believe? Because Daryl found it kind of astonishing that this guy so friendly would have been part of an organization who on paper, at least proves he hates Daryl that that's kind of what it's all about. And, Long story short, they wind up being friends. And then he introduces Daryl to a lot of other Klan folks. And this sort of cut into the chase, Daryl winds up converting by the hundreds, a lot of people getting them to quit the Ku Klux Klan. Because when he would ask them, look, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? When they get down to the end of it, in the end, they kind of thought, well, I I can't. And it turns out that even a heart cloaked in darkness is still cloaked. It's not ultimately what's at the heart. And he, one by one, he got grand dragons to leave the clan. And that, I highly recommend this documentary. It's called Accidental Courtesy. I think you can stream it on Amazon or YouTube even. It's revelatory.
1: That is a story that is typical if you follow Neil of how he'll open your eyes, open your mind, and open your heart with wonderful, authentic stories. So Neil, for people who are not familiar with you, please give us a little bit about you and your organization.
3: I My background was in advertising. For 25 years, I was in the, the creative side of advertising. Just lately, I have sort of started my own company, which is called First Rodeo Productions. Basically, what I'm trying to do now is send messages out to the world in the form of videos and social media that is trying to be a kind of antidote, if you will, to the negativity and the bile that seems to populate our airwaves and our news and our punditry. Because it is my firm belief that human beings don't change, and at our core, We survived as a species because of our great talent for cooperation. And the default setting of human beings is to be good to one another. But every once in a while, somebody figures out a way to profit off our division. And I don't want to be part of that. I want to be the antidote to that.
1: Neil, we have you on the podcast because of your philosophies and helping our higher ed marketers Benefit from them and the one that I would like to highlight today is your philosophy or maybe your observation that a lot of marketers are more concentrated on the metrics and not really attached to the true happiness of their customer. I don't think I can do it justice, but that's the conversation that I would like, or I should say, Barton, I would like to have with you. Can you introduce us to that philosophy a little bit better than I did? And then we can have the conversation from there.
3: I do believe that what you've put your finger on is the problem. The problem is the metrics. It's what we get measured for. It's what we get judged on. It's what we get paid to produce. And frequently in service of a metric, we lose sight of what we're really doing it for. You know, the, all of human experience is really a long catastrophe catastrophe of unintended consequences. For example, the guy that in, that, in order to stop engines from knocking, this guy created this, he added lead to gasoline, and he thought he was doing everybody a favor by cooling the engine knocks, when in fact, he all of a sudden he's producing lead in our atmosphere. Do you know what that guy's next big invention was? Chlorofluorocarbons in air conditioners and in spray cans. He thinks he's helping, but ultimately the unintended consequences of his actions haunted him for his whole life. And Lord knows that's how so many of us operate. We think we're doing the right thing because we're getting a lot of clicks for our boss, but in fact, what you're doing is per- perhaps potentially polluting the marketplace. I'll give you another good example from the world of advertising. Uh, you've got this. You've got this drink that you want to make popular. So your boss comes to you and says, "I need a I need a way to put to market this drink so that people will want it, and it tastes a little bit like orange juice." But it's not orange juice, so you can't call it orange juice. So you call it an orange juice beverage. You know that people are going to mishear you. And it is your willingness to make that mistake deliberately is where we get off the rails. When people decide, I'm off the hook because I didn't lie. I didn't call it orange juice. I call it an orange juice beverage. You knew that they would mishear you. Same thing with the term sales event. What's the one thing you know about it? If you call it a sales event, you know it's not a sale. Because if it was a sale, you would have called it a sale. But they call it a sales event knowing you won't hear it right. It relieves them from the pressure of having to actually reduce the prices. If you call it a sale, legally you have to reduce the prices. Call it a sales event, you are under no such obligation. And in fact, by pulling people out of the woodwork to attend the sales event, It creates more buyer pressure and it actually drives the prices up. It is our willingness as participants in this system to just try to hit the metric that our boss wanted us to hit, you know, to fudge it a little and bend the rules slightly and be a little less human. It's that willingness that gets us into trouble. So you've got to be very careful as a marketer to establish metrics that don't let you cheat.
2: Before my higher ed marketers kind of zone out because they're like, oh, well, we've got accreditation and we've got all these requirements around what we're doing. We would never do anything like that. Well, I would just challenge you to say, are you taking in anybody who wants to apply? Or are you really focused on the mission fit students that are really going to succeed at your school? So now that gets a little bit more personal all of a sudden for the higher ed marketers listening, because I think we all would say, well, we want to just get everybody who can apply to come to our school. But what happens when your retention rates and your graduation rates go down to 50% because half the students who started never finished? There's the problem. And that's part of why I think that we can kind of unpack a little bit more, Neil, with some of what you're just saying there because it's it's a slippery slope to say, well, I would never call it a sales event. That's just not that wouldn't be the way I would do it. But yet I think what you're saying is there's probably some things that we're doing that are very much in the same bucket.
3: I suspect because we're all subject to this. I participated in it just like everybody else. Anytime you attach somebody's financial well being to having them bend the rules a little bit, they're gonna bend the rules. Because We're all under various kinds of pressure. For example, if you say to a young man, newly married, maybe he's got a child to support, and you offer him a bonus for bending the rules ever so slightly, he's going to do that because he feels like his first obligation is to feed his family, not realizing that you start down that road, it gets easier to go down that road. So the fit between what the mission of the school is and the people it attracts I reckon that the highest obligation of any marketing is to pursue that, to nail that to the point where people that show up because they were attracted to what you said about yourself, that, that's what they discover. The truth, they found that's, that you were being honest, that was the truth, and they thrive there because that's what they wanted. Now, it may be that you don't ultimately have a 100% graduation rate for a variety of reasons, And it may be that somebody realizes, well, actually, it turns out that's not really what I was after. But a marketer's job is to make sure that they tell the truth sufficiently that it draws the right kind of person, the kind of person who is deeply satisfied by the experience they had because, yeah, that's what I really wanted. You know, we all know that there is a certain U.S. News and World Report credit that you get for having a high rejection rate. The institution's intention wasn't to go out there and reject a lot of people. It was to create an educated commons, a populace that would make the society thrive. And you, somewhere along the way, by trying to meet those metrics that somebody else established that had unintended consequences, we we got away from our mission. And car companies do it Electronics manufacturers do it, they lose sight of the real the the real human suffering they were trying to alleviate, and by in doing so created a kind of unintended more suffering
2: You're right, I think if we don't understand who we are and we don't understand who are the best fit for the people that are going to succeed at our institutions. It's our job as marketers to go out and find those people, find the watering holes that there are and be able to pull them, attract them to you. Kind of like what you talked about, that physics of of being able to be authentic enough to be able to attract those folks. And I think that that's where sometimes we miss the mark, where we are so focused on the metrics. We've got to just, you know, or we're so focused on what we've always done. Well, we always put up billboards. We always do this. We always do that. And not get creative in the way that we are approaching the way that we are telling our stories, being authentic, being able to get out in front of that and be able to take it to that next level. So I think that, I think you're really onto something there, Neil.
3: I want you to pretend for a minute that you were a completely self-interested parent and, and you are totally selfish about your own child. And you, when you send them to that institution If you're completely selfish, you want to make sure that that child's education prepares them for a life in the real world. In the real world, you're going to meet a lot of different people. They're going to come from different backgrounds, different economic strata, different ethnicities, different nations. Do you really want your child to be brought up in a homogenous, rich only environment that ethnically looks like them? or are you going to want them to be exposed and understand the world as it truly is? I don't think you strictly send a child to an institution in order to provide them with economic advantage. You want to prepare them for the world that they will one day lead. And therefore, you're going to want an institution that grants entry to a lot of people, a lot of people that haven't gamed the system, that that haven't purchased the kinds of uh, advantages in testing and so on that they're going to, that, that you perhaps are willing to or and enabled, empowered to do. That's somebody who's entirely self-interested is to, to be exposed to an institution that is providing them with a realistic and, and broad spectrum of, of like-minded individuals so that they can discover when their mind is adept to learning when they are open to different ways of thought it, it will be a very formative thing so I often th- scratch my head at how how institutions don't go after that as an objective that every individual that in- that enters the institution is going to be well prepared for a world as it truly is and one in which we can all benefit from being together in the commons
1: Neil, I hear you, and I'm glad that you're going down this path, because when I think about American culture, I think that we are rewarded or maybe even admired when we are deemed to be able to do it on our own, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and not need the help of others. Um, But what you're saying is quite different.
3: I have an entirely different view of our own history, and I believe it is I wish there was a term besides whitewashed, uh, because I don't intend for this to contain an ethnic component. Merely that I believe that our history is being told to us incorrectly. The great, the greatness of the Australian experience, the New Zealand experience, the American and Canadian experiences, is that there was a frontier to be populated. And you'll, with my apologies to First Nation, Native Americans, uh, when. Anglo-Saxons arrived, uh, and the same for Australia and likewise New Zealand and and Canada. When when the Anglo-Saxons arrived on the continent and started spreading, they they faced formidable environmental challenges uh, from infestations and droughts and a wilderness that was endless. They had to cooperate in order to thrive, in order to survive. It was that cooperation that led them to grow cities and towns it was a deeply satisfying thing to know that you could rely on your neighbor this idea that we were all lone wolves on the prairie is absolute bs and the celebration of the individual is contrapuntal to our actual what made us survive and thrive it exhausts me to think that anybody is celebrated for having been the lone source of their success because it doesn't demonstrate what we are so very good at is grabbing hold of talented people adjacent to us and saying, I respect you and admire your talents. I have this to contribute. Would you like to do something together? That's how you Mm -hmm. get towns. That's how you get great companies.
2: That rings so true in higher ed because so many times I'll go on a campus and they'll talk about The silos, you know, and and that's that's not a higher ed thing that's in corporate America where, you know, hey, this is my little fiefdom. I'm going to be in charge of enrollment or I'm in charge of marketing or I'm in charge of academics or whatever those areas are that that, that, you know, in in some ways it, it almost it's part of our culture, too, where it's like we versus them type of mentality. And unfortunately, that doesn't work in our culture. It doesn't work in our businesses. It doesn't work in our schools to think that, well, that's not my responsibility or that's not what I'm trying to do. But at the end of the day, I think as higher ed marketers and anybody listening to this podcast, the success of our institution, the success of our business, the success of us as a group is going to be everybody's success. I mean, it's not down to one group. It's not down to one person. It's not down to, well, they should have done that. Because when we get into those places, we get into the politics that we're in the middle of right now in, in our in our world, in our country, in the sense that we're not working together. We're just looking for places to scapegoat and, and blame everybody else on. So you know, what do you think about that? Neil? Does that kind of fit into where you're at?
3: Very much so. Dwight Eisenhower, who is a great hero of mine for a variety of reasons, and the older I have gotten, the more I admire this person. Dwight Eisenhower was chosen as the Allied commander in Europe because among his skill set, and he had many, but he was an exquisitely good maneuverer of bringing people together. Can you imagine the difficulty of having to balance an ego like Patton and Montgomery and Charles de Gaulle, can you imagine trying to get these people to work together and, and function in a way where you could, if nothing else, get them to acknowledge one another's skills? Eisenhower's talent for bringing people together was what you are talking about, I believe. that, and that Oh, by the way, and there's another part of my philosophy, which is everything great is a mashup of something else rock and roll was not an original creation it was a metamorphosis that combined other inputs and each musical movement is that way it borrows heavily from previous movements and the the great inventions are mashups of other discoveries the insight of cross-functional talents is fantastic by the way there's an interesting stat with respect to the, the Nobel Prize winners, if you were to say, what are your odds of winning as a scientist, for example, a Nobel Prize, you're twice as likely to win a Nobel Prize if you are an author or a, or a writer. You are four times as likely. And, and if you are, say, uh, a dancer or a painter and eight times and 20, it's 22 times more likely if you are a, an amateur stage performer you are 22 times more likely to win a Nobel for science. Now you tell me what that means. To me, it is the great, a college campus of all places ought to be the great mashup. Let's face it, students learn as much in the dormitories as they do in the classrooms because it is their exposure and their inclination to hear things they might not otherwise have heard, discover new music, discover new authors, discover new friends from different backgrounds. You hear it all the time in politics seasons. Somebody will say, America is a great melting pot, our diversity is our strength, you know, but I'm not sure they even know what they're saying. I'm not sure they recognize the truth of what they're saying. Can you imagine how different, how awful it would be in the United States if there were no Italian food or Chinese food or Vietnamese food or Hmong food. Can you imagine how poor we would be without the various Indian cuisines, without Ethiopian food, without pizza? It would be ludicrous to think that we're better off with a singular diet of, from one ethnic background. I'll, I'll try fondue. Even though but I'm not gonna eat Swiss cuisine all the time. And it's preposterous to think that we don't benefit from influences of music from elsewhere, from from Arabic contribution to astronomy and mathematics. It's it's preposterous. Well, doesn't doesn't it make sense that you benefit from a Chinese neighbor from Taiwan and across the street is a Korean neighbor. And then there are Vietnamese friends and so forth. You know, when when I got back from two years in Hong Kong and I, I, I said, oh, he's Chinese. And I was corrected by someone who said, you know, here we say Asian. And I looked at them like, you ignoramus. I called him Chinese because he's Chinese. You know, he it would be very much like referring to someone as European after having called them French and his name is Gadois, you know, and him taking some insult from having been referred to as French. I celebrate and embrace and love the idea of the differences of people and let us experiment by pulling in the French cuisine and you know when you are over in China, what you discover immediately is there's no such thing as Chinese food. There are 52 different. There's Hunanese and Taiwanese and Shanghainese and sichuan you know, and so on. so on. And forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that. But you know, it's, it's such a delicious and wonderful thing to discover a new cuisine. Well, that rule, to me, applies to disciplines. and a, a mathematics silo against a physics silo is an absurdity. But likewise, it's an absurdity for someone to not want the humanities involved in the sciences and vice versa. I'm not saying it to grind a political axe. I'm saying it as a parent who wants a child that will have a view of the world that is curious and embracing and open and outwardly focused. I want them to be endlessly fascinated by learning something new. You know, uh, I just found out today that Quentin Tarantino, when he was doing Reservoir Dogs, his first movie, that he deliberately went out and to get a female editor. He said, I suspected that a female editor would be more nurturing towards a first-time director. Now, Quentin Tarantino, if I were to describe to you that I would, if I were to say, well, Quentin, you know, he's a big lefty. (laughs) Not a chance. Not a chance. He was, come on, the Reservoir Dogs? Right? Grindhouse? No, he's just embracing the differences.
1: Thank you very much for uh, taking us there. I I certainly appreciate that. And I think I have a lot of Beliefs that align with yours, as I do, as I know that Bart does. And you've also given me some things to think about a little more deeply than I have before. But I also want to make sure that I touch on a subject that I want our listeners to hear from you. Maybe examples of how to best humanize stories to the degree that you are suggesting, because there's probably an argument from listeners that this is easier said than done. I'm evaluated with metrics. And you're asking me to emphasize more on the outcomes or the happiness of the customer or of our audience. So are there examples where this is very apparent and that has worked well for the institution, brand, etc, that has put forth that effort?
3: I think you're you're right to sort of take us there because, yeah, you can talk all day long about um, about the fluffy idea of uh, you know sending a vibe into the universe that's going to create a gravity that's going to attract people. But let's talk turkey about real results. And I've got a terrific example, I think, of, from Procter and Gamble, Procter and Gamble, maker of packaged goods. As you can imagine, you know when you're when you're in the the grocery store wars where you are doing battle with everybody else on the shelf and you really do, you're measured on the most brutal metrics about how much shelf space do we occupy? What price point are we going to be able to get away with to remain competitive against store brands? How are we perceived? You know, there's a very much economic drive to these things. And yet, and yet AG Lafley, the, M- the CEO of Procter & Gamble when I was, I never worked on P&G and, I, and it's to my detriment because these people are some of the smartest, most driven people uh, out there in Cincinnati. These are, not, these are not lazy people and they're not fluffy people, but AG Lafley had a kind of mission, which was it has to be about something more than clean clothes. The advertising and the marketing we put into the world cannot be exclusively about how it has this additive, or it'll get you 20% whiter clothes, or 15% whiter teeth, or protect this better, or the soap will get you this much cleaner. Even though that did occupy a tremendous amount of their energy at P&G, was to, to meet those metrics, he didn't want to just tell that story. What he wanted to do, and it was explicit instructions, as I understand it, having not been in the room, but during the Sochi Olympics, for example, they were gonna buy a very, very expensive piece of television advertising to run while they were doing those Olympic games. And his instruction, as I heard it, was that he wanted the creative people to, quote, write a love letter to the people that buy our products. And I, unquote, and I thought, oh, that's brilliant. Can you imagine getting that as an assignment? And so what Mm. they did, ultimately, the piece of creative, the story they told was this. In a, in a beautifully shot montage from several different households around the world, they had a series of infants growing up, and the infants, one in Russia, one in Canada, one in the United States, I cannot remember where the fourth was, but they were these babies growing up and... As you would imagine, there's these little infants falling or falling on their butts and the mother's picking them up and in the different languages saying, oh, you know, get back up. Come on, let's go again. And, and then they show the little infants becoming toddlers and the toddlers are in ice skates or they're on skis or they're on snowboards and, and, uh, as they're getting bigger, they're falling down on the ice and falling down in the snow and so forth. But uh, perpetually, the mother is there to help them get back up. And then later, they're teenagers and it's the same thing. They're crashing and they're colliding and they're falling and they're, they're hurting their knees and they're spraining their wrists and so forth. And there is the mother to put the ice pack on and encourage them. You know, it's not as bad as you think. And I know you're cold and so on. And then now they're in competition. And they're failing again and again in competition. And they're not quite making the jump. And they're not scoring the goal. And they're getting smashed against the boards. But again, the mother is there to show them in rehab. And ultimately, the commercial shows them in the competition, in the Olympics. And in the moment of triumph, in the moment when they finally land the jump and they score the winning goal, what do you think they do first? What do all the athletes do? they look for their mothers. And it is this heartbreakingly beautiful moment to see them, you know, the the triumph is not their own. The triumph is shared. And you can see how universal it is and how it transcends national borders. And in that moment, what, what does Procter & Gamble say? they say, for always helping us keep getting up. Thanks, Mom. It's funny, it's kind of funny. I'm still getting emotional. I don't know, when was Sochi, 2014? I don't know, it (laughs) still got me, it still gets me. And the reason, as much for the beauty of the commercial, is because at the end it says, P&G, proud sponsor of moms. And I think to myself, I can hear AG Lafley thinking, write me a love letter to our customers. Now, as it happens, sales of Procter & Gamble products spiked because how could they not? Because mom goes into the supermarket she sees that and she thinks to herself, these people get me. They know. They don't know what I do. They know why I do it. It makes it worthwhile to be seen, to be understood. It has an economic impact to know that when push comes to shove, when they get to vote in the store, who do you think they vote for? Ask the people at Apple whether it matters to the people that buy the products that Apple wants to celebrate people who think differently. And who struggle in the world trying to bring something creative into the world despite the barriers. You know, people buy those, well, not everybody buys Apple products for that reason, but a crap ton of them buy Apple products because they felt seen.
2: I think it gets down to the heart of one of the reasons why i wanted to have you on the on the podcast was the fact that you are able to kind of express it through what i what i saw on linkedin and the, the ways i've seen some of your videos is this shared experience and i love the way you've articulated that through our conversations with the the idea that we can't do this alone we have to be together we all share that humanity and i think that the most successful storytellers the most successful marketers are the ones that can tap into that and get and draw those people that share that same perspective toward them and toward their institutions. So, so this has been great. Thank you.
1: You've given so much, and I hate to ask for one more thing, but it's something that I usually do at the end of every episode. Is there a quick tip or piece of advice that you could offer that could be implemented quickly by a marketer upon hearing that that will move the needle for them in some way?
3: Well, I must say that, uh, and again, this is one of these other lessons that I've learned, Uh, always remember that everybody's favorite subject is themselves. And so when you are marketing something, try not to talk about yourself, but rather stand next to the person whom you are speaking with and think, let's look at something together. If you place yourself at the center of the advertising And celebrate your own greatness It requires them to look up at you and, and agree that you are admirable But frankly, that's not how human beings work That when somebody gets up on a soapbox And thumps their chest And tell me, tells me how wonderful they are My first impulse is Gee, I wish they'd fall off that box And make an ass of themselves Wouldn't that be delicious? As opposed to celebrating some triumph that we both would find admirable, that we both admire, that is a signal to somebody else, I'll bet you we share these great values. And may I tell you that these are the values that drive me? And what you're going to find is that they love you. They love you for agreeing with them about something important to them and something where they could be part of that story If they would only join, give them a story they could be part of a story of greatness, something great and not great because they're going to make a lot of money. It's great because when they left, they left things better than they found them. They're not alone for the rest of their lives. They will be able to say, we left this better than we found it.
1: Thank you, Neil. For those who aren't familiar with you, what is the best way to follow you or contact you? Yeah,
3: so I'm quite easy to find because it's easy to find because I'm Neil Ford at Gmail. And the reason it's Neil Ford at Gmail is because I have an unusual spelling of my name. I'm the only one on earth who has it. So it's N E A L F O A R D, Neil Ford at Gmail. That's how you can find me. And I'm not so popular and great that you can't just get me by email. I'm, my inbox is not stuffed. You can also find me on YouTube where you can get all of my videos. And I'm also quite easy to find on YouTube because of the weird spelling of my name. So I'm just N-E-A-L-F-O-A-R-D. You'll find me on YouTube. And um, also nealford.com, (laughs) N-E-A-L-F-O-A-R-D.com. And because I'm putting together a kind of um, national tour, if you will, a sort of getting out and having coffee with people. And I'd, I'd love it if uh, people would let me know where they are and maybe I'll find my way to your town.
1: Thank you. You've given so much and I'm just hoping that you are, are discovered from those who haven't had the privilege <laughs> of being part of this journey with you online. So again, thank you for being a part of the Higher Ed Marketer podcast.
3: Troy, it's not an exaggeration to say this has been my pleasure and is a, a Real treat to get to know you and Bart. So thank you for having me on. Vaya con Dios.
1: Bart, what are your final thoughts before we close the show? Certainly
2: there's a theme that ran through this entire conversation. The, the idea of, of you know recognizing and celebrating those things that are, are different among each of us but bringing it together. I think the idea of working together, we're stronger when we do that together. Uh, the idea of being together was a thread that went through this entire conversation that I think Neil articulated so very well. And I think that those, those shared experiences, as we consider how we are going to take what we've learned today and apply it to our higher ed marketing, I think thinking through from your, you know, your, in your team, how can your team be better together? I mean, you've got an internal marketing team, an internal agency, how can you do those things better together and lean into each other's strengths? But also, how can you as a marketing team do it better together with the whole institution? not everybody on the campus recognizes your skills they don't necessarily always appreciate what you do in the marketing side to really be able to do the marketing and the and the uh, communications for your school but rather than complain about that why not build this, build those relationships come together be the one that goes first on those situations to break down those walls and those silos throughout your throughout your organization. And then finally, as you're as you're marketing to those mission fit students that you're trying to draw to your institution, I really like that last thing that Neil talked about with, you know, a person's favorite subject is themselves. It reminds me of the Dale Carnegie quote that, you know, the, the sweetest, you know, the, the person's name is the sweetest and most important sound in any language. So much of what we've talked about on this show and that what you've been hearing about the the um, you know trends in marketing in higher education is personalization. And with tools like artificial intelligence and other things coming on, the ability for us to be more personalized in our communications, especially attracting those mission-fit students and helping them understand that this is a good fit for them, that sound of their name, that focusing on them and not you is going to be so important. So, Neil, really thank you for reminding us about that, reminding us about the importance of being together, and it's certainly been a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Each and every episode of the Higher Ed Marketer Podcast is brought to you by Kaler Solutions, an education, marketing, and branding agency, and by Ring Digital, consistently providing double-digit increases in yield for institutions by directly connecting them to the devices of their valued enrollment funnel lists every day. Also, we have a big thanks to offer to our producer, Rob Conlon of Westport Studios, On behalf of Bart Kaler, I'm Troy Singer. Thank you for joining us.
0: You've been listening to the Higher Ed Marketer. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. The Higher Ed Marketer is a production of Kaler Solutions and Ring Digital in partnership with Westport Studios. Views and opinions expressed by guests on The Higher Ed Marketer are their own and may not reflect the views and opinions of their organization. Know someone who's a mover and a shaker in higher ed marketing? Visit www.higheredmarketerpodcast.com and click on our Contact Us page. We'd love to have you tell us about them. Until next time.